You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 70, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. Special shout out to Jacob and Melody, to Ted and Nissa, Steve and Alicia, to Carrie, Roger, Sean, and Caleb, and to anyone who bought me a cup of coffee. Thank you so very much for helping me and supporting the podcast and all that I do here. If you would like to join them in helping me with the podcast, with research and gathering resources, upgrading the hardware as needed, you can go to Anchor FM and click the, the support button. Otherwise, just subscribe, share the podcast with family and friends, start the conversation here, and then carry it into your regular lives. That's really why I do this in the first place. Otherwise, with that being said, today I wanted to talk about pain. Pain in a particular direction, because one of the primary functions of my office as a pastor in my vocation as a pastor to my congregation, but also just to the broader community around me and online, is that I am regularly called upon to sit with people and not only to walk with them in their pain and anguish, but also to receive it from them, usually in the form of a confession or an informal conversation. We sit down and they pour out their pain, their anguish to me. It could be something's gone sideways in a relationship at home or at work. It could be something they've been struggling with for years. Usually it has to do with abuse, self-abuse or growing up being abused, some trauma that has happened to them. Even with the lockdowns last year, the number of people who came to me from other churches and came to me from within the community and the broader community increased exponentially because of the pain and anguish of being isolated, being stuck at home, having to shut down their business or losing their jobs, losing family members to addiction and overdose and suicide. The number of people that I've counseled just in the past year, who during the past year in the lockdowns saw, uh, uh, what do you want to say, a radical uptick in domestic abuse and violence and domestic disputes. Usually when they're at the end of their rope, they come to me. I'm usually people's last stop. The reason for that is that on the one side of the house, people respect me and they hold me in high regard as their pastor or as a pastor. And they don't want to reveal to me what's really been going on in their homes, at work, what's going on in their head, because they don't want me to look at them differently. They don't want to lose my respect. On the other side of the house are those that come to me as a last-ditch effort to save themselves, save their relationship, save their job, save their faith, only because they don't see what I could possibly have to offer them that could help. So I get folks then who are usually at the end of their rope. They've hit bottom. And by the time they get to me, then things are critical. I deal with a lot of people who are contemplating suicide, have attempted suicide. I deal with folks who are in highly abusive relationships physically, emotionally, intellectually. 
folks who can't pay their bills, people who just don't see a way out and they question and they doubt the presence of God, whether God is good, whether their God is listening to them, paying attention, whether they are being punished by God or simply being punished for making the wrong choices. There's a lot that goes into someone finally breaking down and contacting me. But the unifying theme throughout all of my conversations with people, especially, like I said, the last year to 16 months, has been the topic of pain. And as usual, I turn to my Bible, and I turn to Friedrich Nietzsche (laughs) for wisdom and for guidance. So on the Nietzschean side of the house, in his book, The Gay Science, he writes this, Only great pain, the long, slow pain that takes its time, compels us to descend to our ultimate depths. And that, as I just described, is usually where I meet people. One of the things that I have had the privilege and the burden of bearing, coming out of atheism, coming out of addiction, is that I'm very comfortable in the darkness. I am comfortable at the bottom. In a way, I'm comfortable descending into those ultimate depths that Nietzsche just described because I have done such terrible things to myself and to others and had such horrific things done to me in the past that have been excruciatingly painful to the point where I attempted suicide several times by overdose. It's a long, slow pain, that pain. It builds drop by drop until, like an avalanche, the whole sheet breaks loose, builds up a critical mass, and there's no stopping it, that pain. And that's when you are compelled into the ultimate depths of your own soul, of society, and you discover at the bottom other Morlocks, so to speak, other dwellers in the darkness, other subterranean creatures, monsters even, and now you're there with them. And you cry out in the darkness. You scream into the void, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You scream out, my God, help me, save me, rescue me from myself, from my demons, from the monsters in the darkness. And as I said, I have the privilege and the burden of being led into the darkness because I know the way back out. And so that's where I'm the most comfortable, actually. I thrive in crisis. I'm the calmest. The world slows down. Time seems to stop for me when there is an accident, when there is a crisis that explodes in front of me. It's when there's not a crisis. That's when, at least for myself personally, I'm the most uncomfortable in my own skin. That's usually when I pray to God to take me out of this world because I don't belong here. To me, a lot of times when there's not a crisis, when there's not an emergency, I feel like the world, like society, is a, a suit that doesn't fit me correctly. So I'm always tugging at the collar, always trying to shake out the hem, always grabbing at it, pulling at it because I'm uncomfortable. So I meet people in the ultimate depths. Maybe that's where you are at right now. Maybe you've been called to go there too, to help others walk out. But Nietzsche's point is this. I doubt 
that such pain makes us quote unquote better, but I know it makes us more profound. In the end, lest what is most important remain unsaid, from such abysses, from such severe sickness, one returns newborn, having shed one's skin. With merrier senses, with a second dangerous innocence and joy, more childlike, and yet a hundred times subtler than one has ever been before. And at least in my experience, and maybe for you too, truer words have never been written. When I read this, I immediately sent it to everybody that I know who could benefit from this quote. And I, I knew I needed to talk about this in relation to what has been happening to me of late in my pastoral vocation, but also just the last 16 months. And maybe, like I said, you've been experiencing this kind of pain in your house or at work or in your community or just in your society. But again, he says, it doesn't necessarily make us better to experience this kind of pain, to descend into the ultimate depths of pain, but it does make us more profound. And what he means is this. When we emerge from these abysses, and if we continue moving forward, we will move through them. We will walk our way out of them with the grace of God, with God's help. We will walk out of the abyss. We will walk out of severe sickness. And the person that walks out of that pain, who walks out of the ultimate depths of anguish and suffering and affliction, will actually be like a newborn child. He will be like a snake who has shed its skin. You will be merrier in your senses. You will laugh harder at some of the darkest, blackest humor possible. <laughs> you will have a dangerous innocence in joy. And of course, joy doesn't mean jumping up and down and screaming and slapping your hands together. It means to be satisfied with what you have, with what is. And that is dangerous to certain people. It's dangerous to a lot of people because you appear strange and alien to them because how can you be satisfied with what you have when there is so much more that you could have? Why not think about finding a better spouse? Why not think about accumulating better, more expensive possessions? Why not think about rising above your social class, getting that raise at work, driving forward toward your goals? What's wrong with that? Well, if you're never satisfied with what you have, then you'll never be satisfied with what you get. There's a difference between ambition that is satisfied with itself, with the pursuit, with the struggle up the side of the mountain, and the satisfaction that can only be found with climbing mountains incessantly, compulsively. You get to the peak, you look across at the next peak and say to yourself, well, that one over there is higher. I got to get that. I got to climb that one now. I have to. I have no choice. That's a person whose ambitions will never be satisfied with cresting the peak of that mountain. And so the dangerous innocence is gone and they simply become dangerous because they can never be satisfied, which means then they're never satisfied with themselves, never satisfied with others, never satisfied with the world. And it isn't too long in my experience before they go about trying to change people and alter the world to match their expectations and ambitions. And they do great damage to themselves and others as a consequence because they're never satisfied. And you'll have a more childlike and yet 100 times subtler than one has ever been before. You'll be more childlike. And as we're going to get into 
in the conversation that precedes this, the monologue that I want to kind of hit on today, Nietzsche argues that when we are children, that is when we are actually at our most mature. And really then that is the paradox for Nietzsche of life, is that we think as we age chronologically, we become more mature, but it's actually the opposite. He says we become less mature as we get older. And there's reasons for that. But really what we're talking about then, when it comes to pain and anguish, is how does one live the best life possible? while simultaneously embracing pain and as a consequence living dangerously because pain, in my experience, pain is, is sprinkled in death. It is in the midst of pain, even if it's a subtle pain, you stub your toe on the bed, go into the bathroom in the middle of the night and it's dark. That pain that you experience when you stub your toe is a reminder that you are human that you are finite and limited and that your days are numbered and you have no control over them in the end. That simple thing is just a reminder that pain you're experiencing right now, it's going to dissipate in a couple minutes, a couple hours. But the reminder that you are human and not a God will remain. That's what pain is. Pain is a reminder that we are not divinity, that we have flesh and blood that we are bodies as well as souls and minds. And to live in the pain then, to embrace the pain as a positive thing, is to live dangerously. Because at the heart of that is the constant reminder that you're a human being. And if you decide to base jump off a 10,000 foot cliff, well, death is there staring you in the face all the way across the valley. If you jump out of an airplane, even if you're strapped to an expert, a professional skydiver, you're still plummeting towards the earth at terminal velocity. Death is there staring you in the face. When you get married and you face your spouse and you hold each other's hands and look into each other's eyes, death is there staring you in the face. Because to be married is to live dangerously as well because it is to embrace pain. Because any relationship, especially marriage, a committed marriage, is ongoing hostility punctuated by moments of tenderness. It is two people attempting day after day to live together, not just the best parts of themselves, but the worst as well. And if you're in a committed relationship where you literally dedicate your lives to sacrificing for the other person, so that you can live in peace and harmony, so that you can love each other and learn how to love each other anew each day and learn how to forgive each other when you wrong the other. That's painful. It's heartbreaking. As one of my Mexican den mothers, so to speak, once said to my wife and I when we were first married, marriage is hard work, but it's beautiful work. And she was right. She was so right, at least in our experience. It is hard work to be married. It's hard work to be in a relationship with anybody. And the more messed up you are, the more pain you're in, the more difficult it's going to be, obviously, to be in a relationship with other people. Whether they're in pain themselves or not is immaterial. Everyone experiences pain at some level in their lives. That's what it means to be alive, is to experience the pain of hunger, the pain of personal growth, the pain of stubbing your toe, the pain of falling off a ladder, 
the pain of getting hit with shrapnel, the pain of crashing into the wall at Daytona. Our entire life is pain, as Nietzsche says. Life is pain, but suffering is optional. I'm sorry, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. That's the quote. And so in the midst of pain and living dangerously is actually for Nietzsche where the best life is found. Think about that for a second. When we embrace the pain and live dangerously, choose to live dangerously, that actually is where we will discover our best life. So what does Nietzsche mean by living our best life, right? I mean, how can we have the best life possible if we're also in pain all the time? And if we're living on that razor's edge of danger? Well, that's, that comes back to our whole attitude about life then. How do we approach events? How do we approach people? How do we set our, ambush, our ambitions and strive for our highest ideals? Well, for him, it's the attitude of a child, actually. It's to have a childlike attitude towards relationships, toward how we react to situations in the moment, and how we strive to achieve our highest ideals, our highest ambitions. It actually goes back to being children. Because if you think about it, think of children playing at the playground. Think of all the energy emanating from that playground when it's full of kids. They're not thinking about what they're going to do later today. They're not worried about the social parameters that they're su supposed to adhere to while on the playground. That's what their parents are for. They are fully present in the moment. And they're exploring and enjoying whatever game they're playing in that moment before they see some other kids playing something and they say to themselves, hey, that looks like a lot of fun. I'm going to go play that game now. And so they go from the slide, then to the swings, then to the monkey bars, then back to the slide. Then they run over to the bridge. Then they're playing tag. Then they're playing hide and seek. Then they're back at the swings. For children, they're not thinking about what's going to happen for dinner. They're not worried about how the other kids are going to think about them in that moment when they're playing the game. They are fully present, exploring and enjoying the game for the sake of the game, for the sake of being in that moment with those other kids. That's joy. They are completely satisfied in that moment with the game they're playing. And then they move on to the next game and they're satisfied all over again. That to me is what really Nietzsche is driving at when it comes to searching for, struggling to achieve the best possible life for ourselves is to not look at children as being these immature, juvenile, maybe innocent creatures that really don't know anything. And we ought to talk to, talk to them like children, which I find patronizing at best, that we talk down to kids as if they're dumb and we use baby talk versus treating them as little human beings who are capable of great things if they are treated intelligently, if they're given responsibility that is appropriate to their age and their abilities and to recognize how you treat that child today and tomorrow and the day after will determine the trajectory of their life until they leave home. So if you talk down to them and you use baby talk and you over, overly juvenilize them, 
and treat them like cartoons that you are going to mold into a better version of yourself. And so you're projecting your past and future onto your children. In my opinion, that's abusive. That's selfish, narcissistic behavior that you're taking your regrets and your hopes and force feeding them to a child that can't comprehend your past because they weren't there or your future because they're not going to be that person. They're in the moment. They just want to play with their action figures. They just want to collect Pokemon. They just want to play with their friends and go down the slide. They don't deserve or need the burden of your pain put on them. They're not your scapegoat. If you want to put your pain on somebody, go to Jesus, but leave your kids alone. And that goes for other people too. Unless someone volunteers to carry the weight for you or with you, don't try and find a proxy for your pain and affliction because it's not going to help. They don't want it. They're not going to accept it if they're well-adjusted and healthy. And you're going to feel bad about it in the end. It will prick your conscience, so to speak. But a child, what, are, what is a child? A child is pure curiosity. They are the absolute affirmation of life itself. They are life. They are energy in motion. They don't want to go to bed early because they can't get enough of the day. Every day for them has no time limit. The calendar doesn't matter to a child. All that matters is I want to stay up. I just want to play five more minutes. I just want to watch the next episode of this show. I just want to hang out with you and enjoy being with my dad. And what do we do? Well, you got to go to bed because this is your bedtime. And this is, it's Friday. So on Fridays, we do the X, Y, and Z things. And this is the schedule. And we have to keep to the schedule. And I think that's important. I do. We have to keep a schedule because we live in an adult world. And unfortunately, most adults don't share Nietzsche's perspective and attitude towards children or life. And so we are bound by watches and calendars and other artifacts that are not real. <laughs> they are cultural constructs. They are our attempt to control reality, our attempt to control death and pain, actually, and suffering. And so it's a constant struggle, adhering to other people's timetables and understanding, hey, I got to show up for work at eight o'clock. My boss expects it. I can't just, you know, waltz in at 1130 and be like, I'm sorry, I was playing uh, video games with my kid this morning and we got to the boss level and I couldn't just put the game down and come in until I finished. That doesn't work. <laughs> But on the other side of the house, nothing says you can't carve that time out for your kids so that you can be there for them doing those things. Doing not what you want to do with them, but what they want you to do with them. There are times when my kids just want to sit next to me. And those are my favorite times to be a dad. They don't want to play a game. They don't want to go on a trip. They don't want to have an adventure. They just literally want to sit next to me and watch a TV show or just talk. And I consider that a, a privilege and a gift because they're that comfortable around me. They trust me that much that they're just satisfied. Again, they're satisfied. They're joyous to simply be with me, which then, of course, gives me that affirmation. It gives me that energy so that I say to you know my wife, hey, you know what? They don't have to go to bed right now. We're, we're doing a thing. <laughs> we're going to get it to the final boss level. We can't go to bed till we do this. They are curiosity and life. And for myself anyways, I draw energy from that. 
So Nietzsche says then, in contrast to the child, when we become adults, no one that has ever lived has reached the maturity where they resembled a child at play again. No one, as they get older, will ever resemble a child at play again because they're adults now. They don't have time to play. They have more serious things to worry about and to do. We must clean the gutters. They're full of leaves and pine needles. We must go on vacation. It's the only two weeks out of the whole year that I get time off work so that we can do this. So by God, we're going to Wally World and we're all going to have a great time. Right? This is what we do as adults. We look out the window and we say, well, it's raining too hard to go outside and play. Why? Why? Go out and play in the rain. Why not? Go jump in mud puddles. Put on a pair of swim trunks and go have fun in the rain. Well, it's a blizzard outside. Good. Go outside in the blizzard and dig a snow fort. Pretend you're in the Empire Strikes Back on Hoth and you're building a snow fort and you're fighting the Tauntaun. Did I just say fight the Tauntaun? Yeah, I did, didn't I? <laughs> oh, I just lost nerd credibility with that one. But I recovered, so I, I think I get those points back. But the point is then, we set the parameters. We determine as adults what is socially acceptable, even when we're around our own family. Rather than just say, who cares what the weather is like outside? Let's go out in the backyard and play. And let's use the weather. Let's use the elements to enhance our play. Then all of a sudden, we're starting to turn the direction. We're starting to turn this thing around, turn this franchise around, start a winning, a winning cycle for the first time in the franchise's history. Finally, we're turning things around. We're establishing that winning tradition. We're playing new games. We're finding out new ways to look at things. We're not allowing those restrictions to be imposed on us implicitly or subconsciously. Instead, we simply slip out of them and say, not today. We keep experimenting and being playful about life. Not just living the same day over and over again, but being playful about life. When we pursue then, when we go after what we want then, if we pursue our ambitions, instead of being afraid to start or giving up when we hit that first bump, that first obstacle, that rock that's in our way, well, what child gives up? after his or her first attempt to walk fails, when they fall down. They don't just stop walking and crawl around on their hands and knees for the rest of their life. They keep trying. If the snow fort collapses, they don't quit building snow forts. They figure out how to build a better snow fort. Rain doesn't stop children from running around playing in the rain. They use the elements to their advantage to enhance their play. There's an outside world to explore, so what child stays inside? Well, my kids, if I don't force them outside because they'd rather play video games and read books. <laughs> Weirdos. Just like their dad, actually. <laughs> when are we willing to take risks and to get things that we want from this world rather than waiting for the world to give them to us, which as adults, we all know isn't true. If we want the kingdom, we have to take it by force. If we want anything worth of any value, we have to fight for it. And so, are we going to go outside and explore the world? Are we going to have new adventures? Are we going to look at the world with the same curiosity and sense of wonder that a child does 
Or are we going to become numb and dull and boring and say, well, science has explained everything. There's nothing left for us not to know. We know everything. Sure, we've explored 9% of the ocean and space is infinite and we don't really comprehend how the brain works, but science has explained everything to us. We know everything. And if we don't know it today, we'll learn tomorrow. This is why I lament the seeming death or withering on the vine of metaphysics. People don't want to talk about metaphysical stuff anymore. They don't want to talk about the soul. They don't want to talk about higher realities or lower realities. They don't want to talk about alternate dimensions. They don't want to talk about the capacity of the human mind because they're dull, they're boring, they're adults. Only when we are willing to take risks to get the things that we want can we master ourselves and live according to our own values and take our cravings, take our desires and harness them in a positive and constructive way rather than allowing them to dominate us and get us addicted to things that are going to kill us. Because at least from Nietzsche's side of the fence, he thinks that the attitude of acknowledging the things we want from life and embracing the risks that are required to achieve them is actually how one can live life in a quote-unquote mature way. To truly live your best life now, to quote, I think, Joel Osteen, which I can't believe I just quoted Joel Osteen ever. I loathe him. <laughs> He's a shyster and a snake oil salesman. But in, until we are ready to embrace what is necessary, the risks, the joy of exploration, the courage to live in the moment, to, to walk that, that fine line between danger and security, between satisfaction and joy and pain and suffering. But there's pain in the joy, and I think this is what's really important about what Nietzsche is getting at, is that the risk, the courage, even the joy itself is undergirded by pain. The subtext of all of this is, yeah, it hurts. It's painful to go after what you want because it's going to require you to suffer. It's going to require you to make sacrifices. And anytime we have to sacrifice our time, our energy, whatever it might be, to get what we want, to achieve what we want, it's going to be painful because we have to give something of ourselves away. We have to literally make an offering of ourselves to the thing that we are chasing after as if it is a God. That's actually how one lives life in a mature way. Not saying to myself, well, what I'm doing now is serving God and in serving God, I'm going to achieve my best life. No. But in the moment, you're not worried about any of that that I just said. Instead, you're just playing the game. You're just curious. You're just exploring. You're on the adventure. You're embracing the risk because this is actually living. This is life. And it's how you affirm life. It's how you affirm the person that God made. That's how you reach happiness. But then again, what is happiness, right? Especially in the midst of pain and struggle. How can you say, well, I'm really happy because I'm in pain? Is this something that we should strive for? Should we strive for happiness? Is happiness a natural byproduct 
of a better life, a meaningful life, a good life. Because, of course, happiness is very subjective. What makes me happy may not make you happy. It may actually cause you pain. So if you ask people nowadays, for example, if they're happy, more often than not, they say, eh, yeah, you know, things come up, it's tough at work, not necessarily getting along with my partner that well, but overall, yeah, life's pretty good. This includes people that never challenge themselves, never take risks, never ever get out of their comfort zone. If you ask them, are you happy? Yeah, for the most part, because they don't want to challenge themselves. They don't want to take risks. They don't want to get out of their comfort zone. They want what is familiar and safe. As one person said, when asked the question, why do we wallow in our own shit? Because it's soft and it's warm and it's comfortable. And so we meet these people, which maybe Nietzsche would refer to as the untermensch, the slaves, the herd, the common herd. They don't have any strong desire toward life at all. And yet they tell themselves all kinds of stories. They invent all kinds of alibis and self-justifications to argue how happy they are and then to apologize for their happiness in the form of a defense of their happiness. So they have to list off why they're happy but if you live in the upper Midwest, it's always going to be bookended by how they're miserable. Because that's just the way people in the upper Midwest talk. I'll start with by talking about how miserable I am. Then I'll walk it back and say, yeah, but overall I'm, I'm kind of happy. But, and then they'll end with some more misery. Because they want your pity. They want your sympathy. They're emotional vampires. But at the same time, they don't want to admit that they're miserable or that they're in pain. And it's excruciating and it's grinding them down to nothing and they pray to God every night to die. Happiness is not objective, right? It's subjective, like I said. So you can't really quantify it, except in the moment, and say, well, she makes me happier, this movie just made me happier, that song just made me happier, I just submitted a brown belt, that really made me happy. But it's not unreasonable, I think, to imagine that for example, in, in two different people that both describe themselves as happy, one is probably happier than the other in the moment, especially when you compare it to someone who sits on the couch all day. It's not, a, I, you know, it's not necessarily fair to assume that someone who has climbed the Himalayas and gone through intense pain and hardship to get to his goal or her goal that means so much to her that she might actually not be happy. Like I said earlier, her ambition may be such that she's never satisfied and therefore she can't just climb the Himalayas. She's got to climb all seven peaks. And then when she's climbed all seven peaks, now she's looking to beat her previous time climbing those seven peaks. Or she goes on to find something that's better and bigger and makes her happier. She needs that dopamine hit, that endorphin hit. And so you look at the person and you say, well, you climb the Himalayas. You were on the, the cover of National Geographic. You were doing the morning talk show circuit. You were on podcasts. You went and talked at schools to kids to inspire them. You'd think that that person's the happiest in the person in the world. But then they pop a couple Xanax and drink themselves to sleep at night because the world is too small for them. That suit that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it doesn't fit them either. 
And I think this is the thing about people that have gone through great pain and suffering, struggle, affliction, is that when you confront death, when you look death in the eye, whether, like in my personal history, stopping someone from raping a woman in a car and him trying to get a hold of me to just destroy me, whether it be sitting in a situation where there's guns and drugs involved and people's lives are at stake, whether it's suicide attempts, whether it's a nervous breakdown, whether it's just walking that edge, surfing that big wave, climbing the Himalayas, base jumping, free climbing, whatever it might be. However you stare death in the face, something that happens in my experience and in the writing of psychologists and psychoanalysts is this, that one, there's a loss of fear of death. There's a loss of fear of death and a belief that there's something after this life. That there's an awareness that, that your life has meaning and purpose to it. There's an increased sense of self, of who you are as a person and your, your own sense of self-esteem, dignity, self-worth. There's a change in your attitude towards yourself and other people's lives. You tend to be more caring, more open, more compassionate and loving because you, you've gone through and you've stared death in the eyes. Maybe death has even touched you and you walked away and you see the world with that childlike wonder again because you took everything for granted. And death said, snap out of it. This life isn't guaranteed. You're not entitled to this. And I can take it from you whenever I feel like it. And you walk out of that, in my experience, and you become a more caring and open and compassionate person because you see other people in light of death. You see death hovering over them wherever you go. They're like wraiths. And as a side effect, usually when you walk out of death, when you've been touched by death, when you've looked at it, family and friends will have difficulty adjusting to the new you. In fact, death actually is surviving death, I should say. Surviving something that is deadly can often lead to divorce amongst couples because the one person has been touched by death and the other person hasn't. And they're all of a sudden two different people. They're strangers to each other, even though they've known each other for decades. And so what happens, in my experience anyways, what happens when you're touched by death is it rearranges all your values. It rearranges your whole lifestyle. There's an urgency to life. There's a satisfaction with the simple things, which are usually the necessary things for life. And I have this heightened desire to fulfill whatever God's purpose for my life is, whether it be in my vocation as pastor, husband, father, teammate, coach, whatever it may be. And that because of that, I'm more than willing to take the risks that are necessary for me to help other people, to serve other people, to sacrifice my own happiness and comfort, to go into that pain, to go into that darkness that Nietzsche talked about in that quote, that ultimate depth that he refers to, because I've been there. And if I can go in there and help someone else come out of it, if I can walk with someone through that, to me, that's one of the greatest privileges afforded to me 
as a child of God, as a servant of God. Because like I said, when you're in the darkness, when you're in the depths and that pain is crushing you like a 2,000 pound weight on your back, you need someone to help you. You can't do it by yourself. You're not going to be able to stand up under that weight. There's just some pain that you're not going to get out from under without the help of one, two, ten people. So in my opinion, surround yourself with people that will lift that rock off your back. They will take that pain and they will help you get out from underneath it. They will walk with you. They will willingly sacrifice their happiness, their comfort to carry the pain with you until you can bear it. And so for me anyways, what makes a friend is someone who will walk with me through pain and struggle and hardship. Not say anything, not give me words of wisdom or some bumper sticker quote, some pious platitude. They're just there. And when I look at them and I see their facial expression and I see their eyes and how they set their eyes, I know they understand. Nothing needs to be said because I can see that they understand. And they're doing this because they love me. Because they don't want to see me in pain. And they're ready to bear my pain for me. And in some instances, carry all of it if necessary. So is this how we want to live then? Is the pain worth it? Well, I think the question should be, instead, is there really an alternative to living in pain? Well, if you make no sacrifices, if you don't strive after anything that you care about, if you don't sacrifice for the people that you love or the things that you want to accomplish and achieve, if your goals are too lofty for you to sacrifice to get them, then, yeah, there is an alternative to living with pain. But then again, if you never start, if you never get off the couch, how, how much did you really want to chase after your ideals? How much did you really want to achieve your goals? I know a lot of people, and by that I mean I know a lot of people who love to tell me that tomorrow they're going to get off the couch and start, tr- and start working out and training. They're going to start eating healthy. They're going to change their life. I hear it all the time. I'm going to switch jobs. I'm going to move cities. I got to get out of this relationship. It's destructive and it's tearing me apart. <clears throat> but they stay in it because they're addicted to their misery. And the thought of having to go through pain all over again after months and years, maybe decades of getting to this point, when I talk with people, when I counsel them, a lot of it is not wanting to face up to the reality that for the past seven or 17 years, everything that you've worked for has been for naught. The, the marriage isn't better. Your kids don't respect and appreciate you more. Your boss is still a jerk. You're still unsatisfied. And so you make up excuses to stay, which of course is increasing the pain. But now instead of choosing your pain, choosing what kind of pain you're going to suffer, you accept the pain of apathy, 
you you choose the alternative to living a life, bettering yourself, growing, embracing the pain, and, and using it to improve yourself and the lives of others around you. And instead, you just give up. You sit down and you eat yourself into death. You Netflix yourself into death. You put your head in the sand and you pretend by force of will that you're not miserable. So again, you start off the conversation about your misery, then say, well, yeah, but really, I don't really have that much to complain about because X, Y, Z reasons. And then you end it with some more misery because you are truly miserable. And the happiness part of your explanation of your life is a lie. You're making it up. You're trying to alibi yourself when you know the truth. You're in an abusive relationship. You are an addict. You are afraid of success. You are a coward and lack courage. You are weak and you need to become strong. And in order to achieve that, in order to turn that corner and become a different person, you are going to walk through pain. It's inevitable. But in that pain, the pain of change, the pain of sacrificing to the people and the things that you want to achieve that good that you idealize, that's all what living is about. That's what life means. To be in the moment, to be playing the game, to be satisfied, to simply be present and playing with others for the sake of the joy of the game. That's what this is. All of those things you chase after are a part of the game. If you choose to compete in a tournament, if you accept the fight and sign the contract, if you determine, I'm going to climb that mountain, I'm going to run that marathon, I'm going to compete in that triathlon. Once you set your mind to do that, you have chosen to accept the pain that accompanies it. Because you know, no matter how much it scares you, no matter how frustrated and anxious you become, on the other side of it, you know you're going to be a better person. You know you're going to be stronger and better because you've done it before. What scares us, I think, is that our ambitions, once we achieve our goals, we start to question, is there a ceiling on my ambitions? And what is it? Again, it's the fear of success. It's getting to the mountaintop and then seeing, wow, there's more mountains. I thought there was just this one. And then the question just becomes, are you going to fight against lower belts your whole life? Or are you going to get out of your comfort zone and challenge a black belt? Knowing full well, you're going to get your ass handed to you. But is that the point? Is the belt the point? Is the trophy the point? Or is the point to test yourself, to better yourself? And the belt, the trophy, the medal, the accolades, the fame, whatever it might be, however it comes at you, that's just consequential stuff. Because you accomplished your goal and other people recognized that was remarkable. What you did is remarkable. Because, of course, to do anything worth doing, anything worth accomplishing that's of any value to you personally, you're probably going to have to dedicate a significant amount of time and energy to it. Because anything worth achieving is going to require you to go through pain, 
to be injured, to be broken, to break down mentally, emotionally, physically. And yet, in my own experience, I'm five and a half years into Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And it's been nothing but pain and sacrifice to get here. But if you asked, hey, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, a billion dollars, you, you and your children will never have to think or worry about money again. And if you invest this correctly, your family for generations to come will never have to worry about money again. But we're going to take back the last five and a half years. We're going to take it all away from you. But in replacing it, we're going to give you a billion dollars. I can say right now from my gut, I would turn down the billion dollars because it's been five and a half years of pain and struggle. It's been being broken, being injured, being challenged and pushed to the point where I thought I can't do this. I can't go beyond this. And yet every time I do to the point where I wonder what is my ceiling? Am I racing against the clock, so to speak? But again, does a child worry about whether they're eight or nine? So then why do we as adults worry about, well, you're going to be 50 in a month. Who cares? What's a number? It's arbitrary. What are you doing with your life? If an arbitrary number is what stops you from pursuing your ambitions, achieving your goals, who cares if you're almost 20 or almost 40 or almost 60? Who cares if you're 93? Do what you want to do. Chase your goals. And then, of course, as a child, you learn your limitations in the pursuit of those goals. In playing the game, you will learn your limitations. When I played tag as a little boy with other kids on the playground, I learned who was faster than me and who was slower than me. And so you have to adjust your strategy when you're tagged and you're it. You have to adjust your strategy. Don't chase after the fast kids. Chase after the slower kids. Triangulate. Separate the weak from the herd and tag them. There's a pecking order. There's a meritocracy within that game of tag. You're not aware of it as a child, but you're playing into it. You're sorting out who's the better and who's the worse, and you prey upon the weaker and avoid the stronger. It teaches you a lot about life playing tag, or as we used to play wall ball, which was dodgeball, where people stood against a wall, and you threw uh, inflated uh, red balls at their face. (laughs) If they caught it, they were off the wall, and if they took a shot, they were on the wall. Now that I'm an adult, I realize it was basically a simulated firing squad. (laughs) But it was fun. It was so much fun. Even when you got your head bounced off the brick wall, it was still fun. (laughs) Because you're a child and you're playing the game. And part of the game is the risk of getting your head bounced off the brick wall. And yeah, kids did crack their skulls open. Kids did get black eyes and concussions from getting hit with a ball in the face and bouncing their head off the wall. But they were back at school in three or four days. They were back on the playground a week later playing the game because it's about the game. We as adults, in my opinion, have drawn too many hard and fast lines, too many boundaries and and 
barbed wire fences around ourselves to stop ourselves from getting put in those situations where we get hit in the face with the ball, where we get tagged by the faster kid. That's why the whole world is nerfed. That's why everybody's a victim. That's why everybody wants somebody else to take responsibility for them and make decisions for them. That's not being a child. That's being an adult. Being a child is trying to figure out how to solve this problem. How are we going to build this tree fort with the tools and the resources we have? How are we going to organize this game of football when there's nine of us? How are we going to fix the chain on our bike when it slips off the sprocket and we can't jump it anymore? Kids do this. We're resourceful. Go watch uh, Dogtown and Z-Boys about the original pool skaters, Alva and Jay Adams and all those guys. They just figured out how to skate. And they invented an entire subculture. Did they want to? No, of course not. Did they want to get rich? No, they just wanted to freaking skate. And so they found empty pools because there was a drought and, and people weren't able to fill up their pools. And they skated in people's backyards in their pools. And from that, we get the X Games. <laughs> they were just kids. They just wanted to have fun. They just wanted to be free and explore their curiosity and go on adventures. And sometimes you need boundaries. I'm not saying you don't. Sometimes you need to stick to your schedule because we all got to pay bills, unfortunately. Like I said, we live in that dull, boring adult world. But remember, that doesn't have to be the norm. One comedian said that we were always laughing in our house and being serious was what we did when we went to school or to work or when other people were around because they expected it. But our home, when we were together as a family, was fun. And we were always laughing and cracking jokes and busting each other's balls. That's our home. Laughing was the norm. Being serious was the exception. And I would argue that, at least in my family, what we strive for is what Nietzsche is talking about. That being childlike in our view of the world is the norm and behaving like adults is the exception. We behave like adults when we're around other adults. But otherwise, we just are childlike, not childish, childlike in the way that we view things, which is why I love to play video games with my kids. That's why I like to sit down and talk about what books they're reading and see if I like those books too. Well, that's a kid's book. No, it's a fantasy novel written for teenagers. Why can't I, as a, a 49-year-old man, enjoy a book, of a fantasy novel written for teenagers? What's wrong with that? You know what else is written for teenagers? The Hobbit. When I was 14, or yeah, was I 14? I was 14 when I bought The Hobbit at the bookstore. No one said to me, kid, you're too old to read this. When I read The Hobbit again in college, no one said, you're too old to read this. This is, this is for teenagers. As an adult, when I go back and I pick it up, no one says, hey man, that, The Hobbit's for kids. You shouldn't be reading that stuff. I mean, actually, some people do say that. I think it's a waste of time to read. But the point is this. I like the story. <laughs> I like the characters. I like everything about it. I like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I like the Dragonlance Chronicles. I like the Earthwind Dale trilogy and the Forgotten Realms universe. I like that stuff. I like reading comic books because that's what I grew up at or around because I'm Gen X. Those are the cultural benchmarks that we had. You know, in the 60s, they had the countercultural movement. They had Vietnam. They had the, the hippie culture. 
And then the 70s was just the Wild West and a free-for-all. And so I grew up in elementary school in that kind of Wild west kind of 1970s. Everybody was just trying to like, hey, let's try alternative lifestyle choices and different ways to raise our kids and different ways to, to be married and have a job and generate income. And then the 80s came around and everybody clamped down and everything became very politically correct and TV shows had to be upbeat and happy and have these, these good moral messages, which I'm all for, but you weren't allowed to hate people and, you know, the, the good guys had to be good and the bad guys had to be really bad. And it was just a really uptight era. But we had Saturday morning cartoons and we had after school cartoons. We had the holiday specials and we had Lunchables and fruit snacks and Capri Sun we had fun, is what I'm saying. Even though every night on the news, we were told that Russia was probably going to nuke us at any second. But we were kids, so we didn't think about that. We fought the Russians in the woods behind my best friend's house with our M16 and our M1 carbine because we saw the whole world in terms of a game because we were kids. We were aware that it was serious because we could see our parents. We could see how they talked about it and how they reacted to the news. But here I am, June 30th, 2021, and the Russians still haven't nuked us. And for the fifth or sixth time in my lifetime, I'm being told that uh, the weather is going to kill us and the pandemic is going to kill us and terrorists are going to kill us and heart disease and diabetes and all these other things are going to kill us. And so we squander our lives worrying about how we're going to die rather than just living, playing the game. And so I think this is what Nietzsche is getting at when it comes to pain and how we can go in and out of that darkness, so to speak, how we can help others walk through that darkness with us and help them walk out of it is because we have this heightened awareness of ourselves and of pain and struggle, its purpose, its goal, how it can be abused and lead to our own self-destruction how we can lay ambushes for ourselves. But also recognize that it is through pain. Well, really it's the obstacles of the way. That's really the subtext of this whole podcast is that pain is an obstacle that we must go through to get to those things in life that are best, that are the most meaningful, that will make us wealthy. But real wealth, wealth that can't be commoditized or turned into something you can buy at Hot Topic. So I want to end with Nietzsche again from the gay science where I started. Only great pain, the long, slow pain that takes its time, compels us to descend to our ultimate depths. I doubt that such pain makes us quote-unquote better, but I know it makes us more profound. In the end, lest what is most important remain unsaid. From such abysses, from such severe sicknesses, one returns newborn, having shed one's skin, with merry your senses, with a second dangerous innocence in joy, more childlike, and yet a hundred times subtler than one has ever been before. So that is my recommendation, my suggestion to you today. Think on this Nietzsche quote. Also, think on Nietzsche's point whether it's valid or not, that pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. How do you choose to suffer today? How do you choose to embrace the pain and move through it today? 
Are you surrounded by people who will descend into those depths with you and help you walk out or not? If you're surrounded by people who won't help you, why are you surrounding yourself with these kinds of people who are actually adding to your pain, to your misery, to your struggles? Because the pain isn't going to make you better simply because you're in pain. But it will make you more profound. It will make you appreciate pain, life and death, and other people. You will escape these abysses of pain. You will walk out of severe sicknesses or not. You will shed your skin and be reborn, new, happier, darker sense of humor probably, but you'll have that dangerous innocence that comes from joy, from the satisfaction of just playing the game in the present tense. Childlike, mature, because for Nietzsche, that's what we're all striving for as adults is to get back to that childlike sense of innocence and joy, of curiosity and adventure, of exploration and happiness. So be present. Be and live in the present moment. Enjoy the game for the sake of the game, recognizing that another game is going to pop off in a, in a second and I'll go join that game. But there is a seriousness to life because it is a game of life and death. It's the ultimate stakes. But that doesn't mean that we have to take it so damn serious that we stop living, afraid of dying, trying to choose how we die. Instead, embrace the fact that you're alive. Let that energy out. Have fun. Go to the park, swing with your kids. Go play video games with your kids. Sit there on the back deck with your kids and just bask in one another's presence because it's a gift and you're not entitled to it. You don't deserve it. You are a gift because you were created by God and put here on this earth by him, by his choice. Again, not entitled to it. You don't deserve it. And if you have seen death, if you've stared death in the eyes, if you've been touched by death, you know what I'm talking about. So enjoy living. Enjoy being alive. Recapture that sense of childlike wonder and curiosity about life. And live. Just live. That's all I got for today. Thank you again so very much for listening. I hope that this helps. I hope that this gives you some the to chew on today and talk about with others. I hope this helps improve your life if it needs improving. Otherwise, I will talk to you again next week for a brand new episode. See you later, weirdos. Peace.